0: This is All of It from WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. We have this great series we've started, The Big Picture. We do it every year when we take a look at the creatives behind the camera who are nominated for Academy Awards. We spoke with Jennifer Lame, who is nominated for Best Editor for her work editing Oppenheimer. Yesterday, we talked to the production designers of Poor Things, Shona Heath and James Price. And on tomorrow's show, we will talk to the Oscar-nominated sound designer for The Zone of Interest, that's Johnny Byrne, and the costume designer of Killers of the Flower Moon, Jacqueline West. That'll be happening on tomorrow's show. And we're also going to talk to somebody who's nominated for an Academy Award who's in front of the camera, Sandra Hewler who is nominated for the Anatomy of a Fall in the Best Actress category, will be our guest as well. That is all in the future. Right now in the present, we're going to talk about the Public Song Project. We bring you another installment of our week-long public song project launch featuring Friends of All of It and WNYC. So far, you've heard from Arturo Farrell, Low Cut Connie, Billy Martin, and American Patchwork Quartet. Today, we're going to hear from Valerie June. All these songs are contributions to the 2024 Public Song Project and listeners, if you think it sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, you really can. Anyone can send in a song. You do not. Ha- you do not have to be a professional musician. Just pick a work of music, film, or literature in the public domain from the 1920s. Send us a cover or a song adaptation, and you could have a chance to be on the air. For resources and more information on the project, go to wnyc.org/public-song-project. That is wnyc.org/slash public song project. Now, to clarify those guidelines about the work being from the 1920s, Ideally, we're asking you to pick a work of art published between 1920 and 1928. Work from 1929 doesn't enter the public domain until 2025, so that's off limits. However, you can get creative with it. You can pick more than one work. You can even combine something from the 1920s with something from much earlier. And it's worth noting, in some cases, a song that had its heyday in the 1920s was actually composed much earlier. That's true of a lot of folk and blues and genres that were passed down through performance and not recorded sound. And it also might be true of today's. His contribution from my next guest. Joining me now is Valerie June. Hello, Valerie. Hello. So great to speak with you today. Thanks. First of all, thank you for contributing to the Public Song Project. Oh, you're
1: welcome. Thanks for inviting us all, the whole world, to share our songs and our stories with
0: you. It's, it's a really great project. For listeners who are thinking about recording something themselves, can you tell us a little bit about why it appealed to you? Well,
1: I really really love and study old music and it inspires what my work is today and what i hope to do in the future um so when this project came up i was like oh this will be perfect (laughs) for
0: my new favorite love which is beautiful dreamer (laughs) beautiful dreamer composed by stephen foster and published in the 1860s what drew you to this song well, the
1: idea of dreams has been something that's a theme for my of my work for quite a while now. The uh, last record that I put out full length was Moon and Stars Prescriptions for Dreamers. And so I've been working with the idea of dreams and I speak a lot about Dr. King and his dream, but also I think about, you know, dreams the ethereal type dreams that we have when we sleep, but I think about dreams as what we can create in the world that we can see. And I always am pushing for a positive change and using positivity as my form of activism. So when I saw these two words side by side on paper and reading the lyrics, beautiful dreamer, I was like, that's perfect for me and for um, my voice as well. I created a version of the song that is rather haunting. I used a a keyboard player and a pianist that I've worked with a lot, Dave Sherman, and his playing is just so, so haunting and beautiful on there.
0: You talked about using positivity for your activism. Super Bowl viewers may have recognized you in an ad over the weekend for the nonprofit Power to the Patients. Why was that a group you wanted to get involved with?
1: Well, I was diagnosed when I was 27 with type 1.5 diabetes and I had been saving for several years to make a record. and. All the money that I had saved to make that record was wiped out with one visit to the ER mm. where I almost died and went into a diabetic coma. Um, and I came out and my complete savings was wiped out. And I was like, well, I'll never be making a record now. All I can do is, is try to do the best to pay these bills off. And so looking at when I was approached by Power to the Patients, I was like, wow, you mean I'm not the only one who faces these challenges and um, hopes that our healthcare system can can address these issues. So we've all joined forces as artists, musicians, um filmmakers to just kind of lift our voice around power to the patients and hoping that the hospitals and insurers will start to enforce the laws that are already in place to show the prices and give price transparency so that there'll be more like a a more neutral level as far as the pricing on things when you go to the ER because people can't charge one individual a certain price and a different price to a next, the next individual. So, um, it'll be more like when you, go anywhere Mm -hmm. to a coffee shop or a store and you can see the real price so there's more competition so that prices become more equal and more uh, competitive and balanced and so hopefully in that case people won't come out sometimes with these extremely high bills and have their dreams deferred which mine was for many years luckily I ended up getting signed to a record label that that switched the trajectory of my life but if that hadn't happened Happened and I, that setback was years worth of saving. And it's not just me this happens to. It happens to so many people.
0: Valerie, before we hear your beautiful dreamer, your rendition of it, do you have any of the new music in the works? Anything you want to shout out?
1: Oh, I have so much new music in the works. There is a record coming out with Gary Clark Jr. Stop! Oh, yes, I'm so excited. It'll be out on March 22nd. And then a record with Alice Randall. And there are so many Black female musicians on this record. It was produced by an African-American female musician, um, so that record's coming out And then I have my book Which is Light Beams And it is a workbook for being your best self um, And I'm doing a whole lot of um, Wellness and mindfulness retreats Like one at the Omega Institute And in Rhinebeck and Kripalu And different places Over the course of the year That just works with the dreams And positive activism I'm all about that
0: Everything you said Top to bottom <laughs> Valerie June, thank thank you you. for joining us and contributing to the Public Song Project. We can't wait to hear all of your new work. And now we'll hear Beautiful Dreamer, composed by Stephen Foster, and adapted and performed by Valerie June. Thank you, Valerie.
1: Thank you. Have a great day, Alison.
0: For the 2024 Public Song Project, that was Valerie June's adaptation of Beautiful Dreamer. The song was written by Stephen Foster, the great American composer of tunes like Oh Susanna and "Genie with the Light Brown Hair. Foster wrote Beautiful Dreamer only months before his death, and as a result, it was published posthumously in 1864. But despite the song being published in the mid-19th century, we've checked with some music historians, and the earliest known recording appears to have been made decades later in 1928. That seems hard to believe, but it makes a little more sense when you learn that recording technology took a huge leap in the 20s, from the acoustic to the electrical era. Here to explain what those terms mean is Jessica Wood, Assistant Curator of Recorded Music and Sound at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Jessica, welcome to all of it.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: So we just heard Valerie June's version of Beautiful Dreamer. So let's start with that song. Best We Can Tell, the first recording of that song was made in the late 1920s, decades after it was published in 1864. Is it actually possible to confirm whether something like this, a recording of a composition like this, can we figure out exactly when it was recorded?
2: Um, the way we would do that is looking through uh, ledgers from recording companies, um, or from um, catalogs that were published by record companies uh, to see if there's any any sort of dating that those uh, those documentary sources contain. Um, and my go-to resource is uh, the discography of American Historical Recordings, which has dating information. That is based on those documentary sources, uh, and from what I can tell, uh, looking on that site, 1928 was the first hmm. instance of that song being recorded.
0: What kind of clues do you look for on those ledgers, or is it just pretty evident when you're looking through that kind of paperwork when you're going on a on a on a hunt?
2: Sometimes the ledgers will be really helpful and will include the the date and the time and who was working in the studio um, on that day. Wow. Um a lot in a lot of cases those ledgers don't survive and so um especially for like smaller record labels i would use the new release catalogs that they issued um and often they'll they'll give the date and the month of the the new hot releases from from their company um and that will be sort of the closest that you can get to a a specific date for a recording
0: well let's listen to the earliest recording of Beautiful Dreamer from Victor Salon Group released in
3: 1928.
4: Great. Right. Beautiful dreamer, wake unto me. Starlight and you drops are waiting for thee. Sounds of a rude world heard in my day. All by the moonlight have all passed away Beautiful dreamer, queen of my song Listen while I worry with soft melody. Gone are the cares of life to be drawn people dream and awaken to me beauty
0: Jessica, what do you hear in that recording that is interesting to you, something that you hear that maybe we civilians might not hear?
2: Ah, well, to me, uh, he sounds very much like what we would think of as a crooner, which was sort of a style of singing um, that was made possible by the advent of the microphone. Um, And I'm also hearing... The way that the instrumentation emphasizes the the um, the mood of of the song lyrics, uh, I hear a lot of strings, uh, possibly uh, a harp, and I'm also struck by um, the vocal range of the singer. That it sounds like there's at least an octave, uh, um, and a lot of um, sort of phrasing nuances that that um, I might not have heard in a recording from um, before 1925.
0: And is that because of the advances in the microphone? Is that what you're saying?
2: That's that's what I think. Yes, that the the microphones, as opposed to the previous technology, could capture more dynamic nuance and more a wider uh, range in frequencies um, than was um, possible before.
0: Earlier, I mentioned the terms acoustic era and electrical era. How is each of those eras defined?
2: So with the acoustic era, um, you would have what, what we all now recognize as a familiar image of, a, of an amplifying horn connected to some sort of recording device, either a cylinder recorder or a disc recorder. And so you would sing or play into that amplifying horn. And the horn would then direct the sound waves onto a thin flexible membrane um, called a diaphragm. And this diaphragm would be connected to a cutting needle or a stylus that would cut grooves into a soft recording surface, either a cylinder or a disc. And this mechanism was really limited in terms of dynamics and also the timbres that you could capture. if you were gonna sing a song, you'd have to sing quite loudly in order for the grooves to be deep enough that you could hear it uh, when you played the cylinder back. Uh, there were certain instruments like string instruments or the piano that were not captured very well. And so a number of uh, famous pieces were reorchestrated orchestrated um, to include more um, acoustic technology friendly um, instruments. So you might hear, um, Instead of double basses, you might hear uh, parts written for the tuba, which captured um, better on acoustic uh, technology.
0: And when did the electrical era come in?
2: That came about in 1925. Um, and that was, that was really all about the microphone. And uh, microphones also had diaphragms that responded to um, the fluctuating sound waves. But in the case of the microphone, Um, the sound waves were converted into fluctuating voltage, Mm -hmm. and an amplifier inside the microphone would um, help send that voltage through a cable uh, that connected the recording studio to the room where the recording engineer was. And there would be additional amplifiers uh, with the recording engineer that would boost the signal enough to be able to cut grooves um, into the record using a stylus.
0: And this change, so this changed the sound. This changed what people their options, what they could do, what they could record.
2: Yes, yes. And uh, you hear the style of singing change. Uh, you hear the range of instruments uh, change to include more instruments. Um, and it it changed the whole sort of emotional palette that was available to pop singers. Um, you could sing intimate songs uh, more easily with with the electric. Uh, electric technology.
0: We found a couple of recordings of the same song, After You're Gone, and the first was released by Marion Harris in 1918, so that would have been in the acoustic era, and the second is by Gene Austin in 1930, which would have been in the electrical era. Let's do an A-B comparison and talk about it on the other side. Here's Marion Harris from 1918.
3: now, here's Gene Austen's version from 1930. Now won't you listen, dearie, while I
4: say How can you tell me that you're going away Don't say that we must part Don't break my aching heart You know I've loved you truly many years Love you night and day. How can you leave me? Can't you see my tears? Listen while I say.
3: So, Jessica, based on all that information you gave us earlier, what do you hear the difference between the recordings?
2: So, when I hear the 1918 uh, Marion Harris recording, I can almost feel the amount of physical exertion that she's putting into her vocals. Um, And I can imagine that if she were sitting next to me and singing like that, I might ask her to, um, you know, take it down a notch or maybe (laughs) move move a little bit away from me. Um, Whereas if I listen to the um, 1930 Gene Austin recording, um, I almost breathe a sigh of relief because he sounds so much more relaxed in his delivery. Uh, his timbre is more open and less nasal and compressed. Uh, and if I imagine him sitting next to me and singing like that, um, it, it might even feel like a pleasant experience. Um, and it feels like he's singing to me as opposed to at me. Uh, so it le- at least gives me the illusion of um, be having a, a sincere and intimate relationship with the singer.
3: My guest is Jessica Wood, Assistant Curator of Music and Recorded Sound at the NYPL for the Performing Arts. We're talking about how music was recorded and how the technology changed and how that impacted the kind of music that was made and heard and recorded. How do we find the legacy of the acoustic era and the impact of its limitations even in popular music today?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, this is sort of uh, an ironic example, but um, right now I I am feeling myself sort of taken back to the acoustic era as I'm having to press my face against the computer screen in order to be heard, um, probably much in the way that a (laughs) singer might have to press her face into a gramophone horn in order to get the signal to register. Um, But I I think, um, that's an excellent question. Well, you can think about it give for a that some
3: more, I have to give that some more thought. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what about the length of songs? Did the acoustic era or the electrical era impact how long a song could be? Because the songs you've been playing have been pretty short.
2: So the length of songs, that's, that's been a limitation that, um, has existed since the 1890s and lasted up until the invention of the long playing, long playing record in 1948. Um, and that had to do with the number of grooves that you could fit on either a cylinder or a 78 RPM record. Um, the three three minute or four minute song format just sort of governed um, um, consumer listening habits um, for most of the first half of the 20th century.
3: Part of the reason we're focusing this year's uh, public song project on the 1920s is WNYC will be celebrating its centennial this year. Uh, for We first broadcast July of 1924, so right before the electrical era. How does radio fit into this history of how music is recorded?
2: Radio was sort of what um, prompted the recording industry to adopt electric recording Um In in 1924, there was a big breakthrough in in radio receiving technology um, that really improved um, sound recording, or um, improved sound quality to a degree that really surpassed um, sound recordings at that time. Um, And so it set sort of the new gold standard for what people expected to be able to hear from their speakers.
0: When you think about, we've been talking about what happened 100 years ago, when you think about the era we're in right now in technology and recording technology, how would you describe it?
2: It seems now that we are in a, a period of infinite possibility. I can't think of um, limitations that we have now that would affect the artistic decisions that somebody would make in in writing a song. You can or a piece of music, you could make a piece of music that's 48 hours long, you could record um, as loud as you wanted, as quiet as you wanted, um, and you could use whatever instruments you wanted. Um, That's, yeah, it seems like we're in an era of infinite possibility.
0: If someone wants to learn more about all of this information and the resources available to them at the NYPL for the Performing Arts, where can they go? What is an example of something they can experience?
2: Uh, Well, we have um, probably about 500,000 disc recordings in our collection going back from the 1890s up until um, yesterday, Um, you can hear acoustic recordings and electric recordings and digital recordings. Um, it just takes us about 10 to 15 minutes to pull the recording from our basement stacks and cue it up on the record player. Um, and in addition to that, we have a whole bunch of, um, primary source documents that, that give you a flavor for what it was like to consume and hear music back, um, starting in the 1890s. So we have a lot of uh, publications uh, designed for the record buying public, uh, for collectors. We have um, a number of interesting magazines designed for uh, record dealers that would um, tell you what were the new fads uh, among record consumers. And there are all kinds of things that record players were used for um, that you would never dream of today, uh, that these these resources sort of shed um, light onto.
0: Jessica Wood is Assistant Curator of Music and Recorded Sound at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Jessica, have a great day.
2: You too. Thank you so much.